relationships often are stronger and can form deeper connections after a rupture. And so for a child to see that whole thing unfold, that A, they had an impact on their parent, B, their parent's not perfect and can blow up and can make mistakes, and then C, that they can take responsibility for those mistakes, repair the relationship, and now the relationship is even stronger. That's an incredibly powerful lesson for them to learn. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be talking to Dr. Marcy Caldwell, who's a psychologist and ADHD specialist. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to stop blowing up at your kids, a topic that we can all very much relate to and information that we can all use. Even those of us who kind of teach parenting or coach parents still need reminders of how to be less emotionally reactive sometimes. Thanks for being here, Marcy. Can you start by introducing yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Marcy Caldwell. I'm a psychologist in Philadelphia. Um, I specialize in helping adults with ADHD thrive. I have a group practice in Center City, Philadelphia, and I also have a blog and digital resource for adults with ADHD called adept.org. And there we talk about living, working, parenting, and loving with ADHD. Yeah, so much great information on that website. I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, A lot of really timely information and just general foundational stuff too, which is awesome. Let's start at the beginning, I think, with defining what we're really talking about here. When we talk about blowing up at your kids. We're really talking about being emotionally reactive, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, I, I like to think of ADHD, you know, because I come at this from, from an ADHD lens. And so I like to think of ADHD as a regulation issue. Um, And so when we're having a hard time regulating, you know, our executive functions and our um, attention and focus and, energy, we also have a hard time regulating our emotions. And so it's a matter of keeping, you know, keeping our responses in line with our intention. Um, That's that's often how I think about emotional regulation is not necessarily constraining the extent of the emotion, you know, that it's not a bad thing to have a lot of emotion. I think where the where the problem comes is when that emotion then translate to, translates to behavior that's not in line with our intentions. Yeah, that's such an insightful way to describe that. You know, I talk all the time about behaviors communication from Ross Green's work and, you know, really seeing behavior as a symptom and that can help us be calm and stay calm as parents when we're dealing with behavior. Mm-hmm. But to also see that sometimes the regulation issue shows up as acting in a way that really isn't 
the intention. Um, talk a lot about looking at the intention of your kid's behavior as well. And that really illustrated it in such a succinct way. I think about the quote that we need to respond to our kids and not react. That certainly I think is helpful as well. Yep, exactly. So we're in the midst of some intense behavior from our kids or even, you know, we're on the road to meltdown. What do we do to keep ourselves from kind of mirroring that behavior, right? Giving it back to them and being very reactive. What can we do to stay more calm? So I often kind of analyze a a acting out and, and I'm talking about a parenting acting out here because you know we we can expect kids to be acting out right now and honestly we can expect parents to be acting out too um, but we're all trying to to limit the parenting acting out and so I think of it as as happening kind of in three phases so the first phase where where you can intervene is the escalation of kind of the bad behaviors that that are going to trigger a parent meltdown. Um, the second stage is the actual parent meltdown or blow up and avoiding or at least minimizing that blow up. And then the third stage is if one and two still happened, then it's about repairing after a blow up happens. And so you can kind of intervene at any one of those spots. And honestly, intervention at any one of those spots is really useful. Useful for the kid, useful for the parent, and useful for the relationship. Yeah, definitely. I see parents talk about all the time that they blew up at their kids and they have a lot of guilt. Mm -hmm. And I think the best thing we can do is show our kids how human we are and that it's okay to make mistakes. And so that, that part of repairing after is huge. Mm -hmm. um, let's start first, though, with the first step, intervening. Yeah, so the intervening is, you know, it's, it's really hard. And it, it's because it means that you have to be aware of those signals that our kids are giving off that they're out of balance. Because I think most, most bad behavior comes from a child who's out of balance. And that out of balance can happen in so many different ways, right? Like they could be hungry, they could be tired, they could be understimulated, they could be overstimulated, they could be feeling like they're emotionally kind of not being taken care of enough. Um, they could be feeling like they're being overtaken, overly taken care of, right? So it can happen at so many different spots. And so trying to see those signals, those red flags for when that out of balance happens, you know, and so those red flags, you know, every child is different in terms of what they look like, but they tend to be the whining, they tend to be kind of a change in energy, you know, so if they were, if they were seeming tired, they suddenly get ramped up and, and kind of crazy, um, or the other way around, it can be, you know, starting to act out or getting getting physical in some way. All of those things are red flags for something's out of balance here. And so then going in and seeing, you know, what piece is out of balance. You know, for, for adults with ADHD, this is a particularly hard thing because it requires a lot of attention um, and sustained attention and sustained focus on their children, right? And 
being very, very aware of subtle cues is not the ADHD brain's best strength. <laughs> right, right. I think it's hard for all parents to, yeah, in some ways, yeah. to really stay that in tune all the time. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think right now in quarantine, there's this additional difficulty of we have them all day. And, you know, a lot of us are still trying to work. And so we have so many more distractions happening, Mm -hmm. strangely, even though our world is smaller. Um, But it's not like we just have kid time or just have work time. Now the two are interconnected and it's really hard to be attending to those small little shifts in energy from our kids when we have a job to be attending to or, you know, food to be making or whatever. I think there's a lot more emotion going on right Mm -hmm. now, too, especially if you're in anxiety, Um, sadness. And I mean, personally, I'm dealing with a lot of emotion around the Mm -hmm. whole thing. And and it's hard. It's hard when you're cooped up and you're um, seeing the news and whatever. There's our brains can easily run away with the emotional pieces of it if we allow that. And we have to remember that while our kids may not be expressing fear, they likely are feeling it in some way or another. And so that could be affecting behavior during this time more as well, I think. And that kind of dysregulation. Yeah, I think that's so right. And, you know, and I think that at least for younger kids, they really don't understand. All they know is that their whole life just changed. Yeah. And they know that there's something kind of big, bad and scary out there, but they don't understand what it is or how it's transmitted or, I mean, just today I was at a large park with my five-year-old and he said, mommy, that little girl's going to get the sickness, which is what he calls coronavirus. And I said, why? And he said, because I think she's having a play date with another little girl and that's how you get the sickness. And I was like, oh, my heart broke. Yeah. You know, that we've, we've tried to communicate in a way that you know, would be understandable, but not too much information, but when, you know, but they fill in the blanks, right. In, with their own interpretation. And, and that leads to a lot of fear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know in our house, there has been a little bit more emotional reactivity than normal mm-hmm. during um, the time that we've all been staying in place and staying home. And I think that's just natural, but it's also, you know, a good way to practice how to see these red flags, Mm -hmm. to see behavior kind of creeping up or see something ramping up um, and to be able to practice kind of noticing and intervening. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think, you know, with every crisis, there is opportunity. And I do think that we're all learning a lot about each other right now, right? That um, when you have this much time, with people, you really learn more subtle things about them. Um, You know, and I think parents are learning a lot about their kids and a a lot about what sets them off and what works for them. And, you know, these aren't necessarily lessons that they signed up to learn, but there are lessons that they're learning and that will be useful down the road. Yeah. What are some strategies for intervening? If we see some red flags starting, maybe our child is getting worked up, keyed up about something, frustrated, upset, whatever it might be. Um, Refusal. I often see refusal as a sign of either Mm -hmm. dysregulation or, you know, a lagging skill with managing what's happening. 
what do we do then when we see these red flags to try to, you know, intervene in a meaningful way to either reduce what's happening or stop, kind of stop the train from going off the tracks, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I often talk with parents about the importance of connection, right? That that dysregulation while it doesn't always come from a lack of connection, connection is often the the point in to then figure out what it is that's setting things off, right? Yeah, so connections, everything. Yeah, and so just getting you know getting at eye level with your kid and really making eye contact as best as possible and checking in with them and saying, "Hey, what's going on right now? What?" check out what's happening in your body. Tell me what's happening right now. And, you know, and, and, and some reflecting is good too. So, you know, I often say to my kids, like, it seems like you have a lot of energy inside that body right now. What, tell me more about what's happening. So connecting, reflecting what you're seeing in kind of child language and then checking in and, and asking them, asking them what they're experiencing. Yeah. And the piece that you mentioned about asking them how their body is feeling is monumentally important, especially for kids who often have some interoception issues, um, mm-hmm. connecting with how their body is really feeling and connecting their emotions with their behavior, you know, communicating emotions differently. And this is something that I've learned, you know, more recently in the last few years that I wish over and over I had known to do when my kids were little. Mm -hmm. I think it's a hugely helpful process to kind of walk them through to make sure they're connecting. Um, Anxiety is a really good example to use because that's pretty easy. When we get really anxious, we might have butterflies in our stomach or a stomach ache. We might have a tingly sensation. You know, there's a lot of physical things that can happen when you have anxiety. And then that can be used as a tool to say, oh, I'm, I'm getting anxious. What can I do um, as kind of a self-intervention, right? And so building that awareness for our kids early with relating how they're feeling to kind of what's happening for them mentally and emotionally, I think is so huge in helping them with things like dysregulation or self-regulation and um, being able to communicate with people better in a more effective way and even connecting with people better. When you start to understand how you're feeling, then you can also start to understand how others might feel in similar situations later. Yeah, yeah. It's a big, big deal. And I, again, I wish I had known so many years earlier but, you know, what a could have shut up, right? <laughs> exactly. It just so real. keep going. We all make yeah. mistakes. And you know what? I don't think it's ever too late. I actually, no. you know, I got that language, honestly, from my work with adults. Um, because I think there are so many adults walking around in the world who are so disconnected from their bodies. And, that, and so many of my clients are. And, you know, I started to see this happening, you know, with a lot of people with ADHD and a lot of people without ADHD are kind of not having this connecting, you know, they might be aware of a sensation, but they would just feel irritated by it. They wouldn't necessarily know what it meant. And that once, once that connection happened, it then gives us key 
into your experience, which then allows you to actually make some change. Right. Again, you're seeing that as a symptom and being able to dive deeper to really work on, you know, why something is happening, which is so, it's paramount. It's everything, especially in parenting. You know, our traditional parenting is to punish behavior, give them enough pain or fear that they won't repeat the behavior. Mm -hmm. That never addresses why it happened. And for neuroatypical kids, kids with ADHD or autism, it's just not effective. You know, there's something underneath. And and I fully wholeheartedly believe that that authoritarian parenting through fear tradition that we have is wrong for all kids. But, you know, especially kids who have all this dysregulation and lagging skills and developmental delays, you know, we have to look at why something is happening. And then too, that helps us with intervening in a meaningful and effective way. Yeah. And I, think that this kind of awareness, this body awareness is kind of what I was, um, how I talk to people about the stage two of this blow up is is that for a lot of parents and particularly parents with ADHD, there tends to be an on off switch for emotions um, and lots of things um, rather than kind of a dimmer switch. So they're not as aware as their anger is building. Um, they just are either fine or they're blowing up. And so having this awareness of your body turns that on-off switch into a dimmer switch. So that if you start okay. to, you know, as the kids are um, acting up and you're trying to kind of ignore it because you're trying to get some work done or make dinner or whatever, um, or just zone out because you need to zone out for a moment, but you're getting irritated right? And you're just trying to, you're trying really, really hard to ignore it, but that irritation is, is building and you, you know, and your breathing gets a little bit more shallow and your heart rate starts to increase a little bit. Maybe you start to feel kind of flushed. These are the little cues inside your own body that are saying, you know, that dimmer switch is moving. Is moving closer and closer and closer to that blow up stage. Right. And once it clicks over to there, we know what happens there, right? There's yelling, there's, you know, there, there's, there's a big explosion. Yeah. And so being aware of those red flags inside our own bodies as parents is really important to avoid that blow up. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, again, that goes back to the mindfulness, the mindful awareness really being connected within yourself even mm-hmm. to be able to recognize when something needs to change it's so so important and i think you know we talk so much about authenticity and it's kind of this buzzword that everybody's tired of hearing but that's the only way that we can kind of be ourselves and for our kids to be themselves who they truly are you know so often kids with adhd feel like we're trying to change who they are because we're trying to change these different behaviors that are often part of their brain, part of their ADHD, something that they can't just turn off. And when we get so reactive sometimes to some of those things, it's kind of sending them the message that we don't like who they are. We want them to be some someone different. And that can be so damaging. You know, I think so often when we're not aware, we're not connected to ourselves, 
we are not kind of living our truth. And that's so important for our kids. And I find in my family, a lot of my son's blowups over the years have been when he felt like he was misunderstood or he was not really heard. And that's really common, I think, for kids with differences that they often feel like people don't get it. And we don't. I mean, truthfully, Mm -hmm. I don't have ADHD. I don't fully get it. But I try my darndest to learn and to be open to really hearing him and to throwing out kind of those normal expectations. Um, Then that allows them to be who they are and for us to stop kind of fighting that. I think a lot of that reactivity comes in that place where we have all this friction from kind of pushing against the reality of who our kids are. I completely agree. And I think that when when we push against who our kids are, we can't help but throw them out of balance because that balance happens within the authenticity. That balance happens from being who I am, owning who I am, and operating from what I what I have available to me. Yeah. I wrote a book several years ago called The Insider's Guide to ADHD. And I was so desperate to understand what my son was going through and how he was feeling, you know, what his experience was like, because I felt like I couldn't possibly help him if I didn't get it. And so I surveyed a bunch of adults with ADHD, thinking that was the population who could kind of tell me what worked and didn't work for them as kids. And over and over, I kept getting, you know, different stories, but with the same thread of truth to all of them, that they felt like they were not heard or couldn't be themselves. So I talk a lot in that book about, you know, seeing our kids' truth and honoring that truth, letting them be who they are and not trying to, you know, again, push an atypical kid into that very neurotypical box of expectations. That's where so much, I think, of these kind of explosive interactions come from is, is, you know, expectations that just aren't aligned with our kids' truth. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also, that's also so much of what I see uh, with the people that I work with who are largely um, adults and often really high achieving adults who have ADHD, but often didn't get diagnosed until later. So they didn't have a language for what was going on for them. And so there was even more of this kind of being pushed into boxes that didn't fit for them. Yeah. And when that happens, you know, kids are left to, explain for themselves why they don't fit this box that everyone thinks that they should fit. And almost always when we were left to explain for ourselves, the way we explain it is there's something wrong with me. Um, And we don't think there's something wrong with my brain or there's a difference with my brain. We think, you know, there's something wrong with me as a person. And it almost always gets interpreted in that way. And that can be so damaging. And, you know, it's often what leads adults to therapy um, because that's the interpretation, you know, that by the time they're adults, they've figured out how to handle a lot of 
the struggles they have, but it's really the misinterpretation of their struggles that is the biggest issue for them. Yeah, I moderate the online forum for Attitude Magazine, and so many adults talk about when they're diagnosed in adulthood. I always thought there was just something wrong with me. I always thought it was just me. I'm so Mm -hmm. glad to have a reason, which is then often followed by why didn't somebody figure this out sooner, right? You go on this emotional journey when you're diagnosed in adulthood very differently from, I think, when you're diagnosed as a child. It's just kind of your norm, you know, if you're diagnosed when you're young. But it is very much what happens. You internalize. And I think, too, not only do you not see that your brain is different or, you know, that it's not just that you're bad or broken, but seeing that the person on the other side of your interactions could be mishandling it, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, we take it all upon ourselves, but we don't live this life in a bubble. Like we have other people with us. And so sometimes it really can be that the way someone else interacted or reacted was really at fault. But as human beings, I do think we we internalize so much. It, it's the only thing we can control, I guess. We can't control other people. Um, yeah, it leads to a lot of therapy, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I think that's particularly true of kids, right? Because it's too scary for kids to think that the adults in their life or the world in general doesn't know what they're doing or could be wrong um, because kids are so dependent on us as adults. And so they almost always just out of as a self-preservation and sanity saver blame themselves because if they're wrong, then at least their world is stable and safe. Yeah, that's a good point. I should backtrack a little and say kids who are diagnosed as kids also struggle with that. Um, You know, I, I realized that that was kind of a broad statement that I needed to clarify, but like my son was diagnosed right after he turned six. He was super hyperactive and just Um, was kind of just jumping out of his skin and couldn't succeed at anything, really sad all the time. And we could tell that something was off. And he now at 17 is doing a lot of work with his therapist over the last year on self-confidence. All of these things that we were seeing on the surface, like some really bad coping mechanisms, really unhealthy coping mechanisms that he was using or wanting to give up on school just quit and not bother anymore um, was really all drilling down to his self-esteem and his self-worth and his um, feeling that had built over the years at school that he wasn't good enough or he wasn't capable of doing what other kids could do. And, you know, despite a lot of fighting to try to get him the accommodations and really the understanding that he needed because he's twice exceptional, you know, he's super smart and that's what people tend to see on the surface and kind of write out their expectations for. And so even when we know that it's ADHD, even when you have a parent like me who's super invested in researching and understanding and, you know, really diving as deep as possible, that can still happen. You know, Mm -hmm. they can still translate things as a lack of capability or a lack of competence. 
why don't we go ahead and talk about then step number three, repairing after. So we've had sure. a blow up. We're, we're feeling guilty about our parenting. Mm-hmm. What do we then do to repair? Yeah, so I think this step is super important. Um, obviously, it's important in terms of repairing the relationship, but I think it's also just important in terms of kids' development that they experience it. So I often start with, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world for kids to experience their parents getting mad and frustrated and blowing up. That while we all feel super guilty about it and we wish we never, ever, ever did it, I don't know that it's actually would be the best thing for kids to, you know, enter into adulthood, never having had somebody get angry at them yeah. <laughs> um, because that's just not real life. Um, to know that they have an impact on their parent, you know, that not only can they make their parent happy and joyful and, um, and love them, they can also make their parent really angry. Like that's a really important thing for a child to know and understand and develop. So I, I often start there in terms of like, let's, let's get this guilt right size. I know you didn't want to blow up, but it's really not the worst thing in the world. And now this repair step offers kids also the opportunity to see through example what it's like to apologize, what it's like to take responsibility for, you know, for your actions and to do that in kind of a right side sort of way, not in a, I'm the worst parent in the world. I, you know, that was horrible, you know, and, and like berating yourself, but also not, you know, off the cuff, like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that moving on, you know, doing it in a right side sort of way and then experiencing the repair that happens from that, you know, that I think that relationships often are stronger and can form deeper connections after a rupture. And so for a child to see that whole thing unfold, that A, they had an impact on their parent, B, their parent's not perfect and can blow up and can make mistakes, and then see that they can take responsibility for those mistakes, repair the relationship, and now the relationship is even stronger. That's an incredibly powerful lesson for them to learn. By the way, they're not going to learn it just if it happens once, like it has to happen over and over. And so it's okay if we blow up, you know, obviously we don't want to blow up every single day or, you know, every hour, but, but it's also okay if we blow up sometimes because this is an important lesson and they need to learn it. Yeah. And we're modeling too for them. What happens when you've had that behavior? What should you do? If you blow up and scream at your friend, do you pretend it didn't happen? Like most parents would like to do when we blow up Mm -hmm. at our kids or, (laughs) you know, do you take responsibility and make an apology and then be able to move forward with, you know, a healthier relationship instead of a lot of pent up animosity? Exactly. And that's often, you know, when I talk about what that repair looks like, I I often will say, you know, you kind of go through those steps. You say, you know, I'm 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 really sorry for how I acted. You didn't deserve that. I often think that that's an important piece to add in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I shouldn't have blown up. I often will ask parents to say to their kids, what I should have done is 
X, Y, and Z. And usually it's like, take some space when I started to notice myself getting frustrated because that, that offers some of that additional learning of like, this is what I should do, but I didn't. And, you know, and I'm really sorry that had that impact on you. And then I often say to ask the child, you know, what was it like for you? Allow them to kind of, to say a little bit about what that was like and have it be more of an exchange rather than than just kind of a monologue from the parent. Yeah, I think it's so important to cue them to talk about their feelings. Mm -hmm. We tend to, as a society, disregard that. You know, we don't want to share our feelings. We don't want Mm -hmm. to be open. And I think, you know, our culture has created a lot of shame around anger and sadness and, you know, the, the feelings that we would call negative. And we really have to be very mindful about teaching our kids that all of the emotions are natural and acceptable. It's what you do with them, really, that is the key. Exactly. I love that. While you were talking about repairing after, I wrote down when we protect kids, we don't prepare kids. Mm. I think that you know, our inclination is for our kids to never feel pain. And that's where helicopter parenting comes in. But even beyond that, we just have this really strong drive to try to keep our kids happy all the time. And then we end up with kids who don't know how to get through something hard or painful without us which is kind of where my parenting has landed lately. I have a 21-year-old in college, and then my son is 17. And what I'm learning from his therapist that we've been seeing the last year is that I'm still enabling him. I'm still kind of rescuing him when things get tough. You know, I, I don't want things to be hard for him. And I'm not allowing him then to figure out how to manage on his own, to figure out that yeah, there are hard things in life and I can do them. I can get through them. I can be okay. You know, another tidbit I wish I had known when my kids were littler, but it's really something that we don't think about because we have such a protective instinct and we really do have to let our kids experience some things that are hard and painful or challenging for them so that they can see, they can actually feel that they can do it. Yeah, I think that that sense of self-efficacy, which is what you get when you go through hardship and survive, mm-hmm. that is so important. And particularly for people with ADHD, I think it's really important because there are so many struggles and so many hurdles. And people with ADHD are given the message so often that they can't do things. And if they can build up any sense of self-efficacy, that helps fight against that. And it helps fight against this feeling of, you know, the minute a hurdle gets presented in front of me, I have to, you know, take the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. If you have a positive sense of self-efficacy, then you know, actually, I can get over this hurdle. I can do this hard thing. It's okay. Yeah. My son is the king of avoidance. Mm -hmm. We've had even a lot of school refusal over the years. Like he'll do anything, anything to try to avoid something that he thinks is going to be hard or painful or uncomfortable or whatever, you know, and it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to 
know, I think where that line is, how much do we push and challenge without kind of breaking them, right? Mm -hmm. Without really going over that line. And I think, you know, the answer is just little bits at a time. Challenge a little and challenge enough that they can still succeed and, you know, get some of that self-efficacy feeling. And the more they feel they can do things, you know, that's rewiring the brain. We, we can tie all this even to neuroscience. It's a big deal. And I mm-hmm. think then too, it helps with your mental health. If you're kind of always have this victim mentality, you might be anxious, you might be depressed, you know, you're always kind of in that negative space of feeling. But if you really feel confident and competent, then you are much happier. It just, I think, a more pleasant life experience when we're in that mindset. Yeah, I think if you know that you can get through hardship, then you don't have to feel anxious about it, right? Yeah. You don't have to feel like you have to be on guard and operate from this place of fear of scarcity because you know that you can get through it. And yes, it won't be pleasant, but it will be okay. Um, there, there's so much freedom in that. And when you can experience that freedom, I completely agree that you think it really helps with overall mental health. There is so much freedom in that. I love mm-hmm. how you put that. There's so much freedom in it. Any last thoughts to wrap up? We had a pretty robust conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we might have actually hit all um, of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the only thing that um, we didn't talk about is one kind of concrete strategy that might be useful for some parents in terms of that blow-up time. If, mm-hmm. if you do notice that increasing um, anxiety, stress, pressure, anger building, that there's there's a old CBT method called STOP, and that STOP with two Ps um, is an acronym. So the S stands for space. Um, and so you want to take some space. You want to kind of just get out of the environment. For me, I live in a, in a small row home um, in Center City, Philadelphia, and so I go to my basement. But I have clients that put themselves in a pantry or a bathroom, doesn't matter. Um, but just getting away from the situation, um, taking a breath, you know, which calms our physiological system and allows our thinking to kind of come back online once we've been able to calm our system. So the T from stop is take a breath. O is observe what you're feeling and what's happening. So kind of going back, checking in with our body, what's happening, but then also observing like, okay, so I started to get really frustrated because, you know, my kids weren't listening to me or whatever. P, the first P is put into perspective what's happening. So yeah, they weren't listening to me, but this is a really challenging time. And I wasn't, you know, I was pretty distracted. So they got into their own world and then they weren't listening to me. So putting in that perspective, kind of zooming out, seeing what what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then the final P is practice what works and proceed. So um, once everything's been calmed down, you've had a little perspective, then you go back in and you connect and you look at them in the eye and you say, I've, I got really frustrated. I'm sorry. I do need you to listen to me right now. Right. And you kind of, you make that connection. 
yeah, we need to print those out and put them all over the house. (laughs) Everywhere. It's hard in those moments Mm -hmm. to really walk through a process like that. It takes a lot of practice. And so does, you know, just a mindful awareness takes practice. Yeah. But it's so helpful too for our kids to learn that, the stop. I do actually recommend that people make a big sign yes. um, and, you know, draw it out with their kids, make it an art project and hang it prominently. And it can be, you know, a tool that everybody uses. I'm glad you thought to mention that, remembered it before we closed, because that's super helpful. Um, and I'll try to link up to some sort of flyer or poster or something for that, that people can print out and post as well in the show notes. And in the show notes will also be any other resources that we've talked about, as well as ways to connect with Marcy and her work, her website, social media. And I certainly encourage you to do that um, as well. And I want to thank you most of all for giving us some of your time and wisdom to help our parents to just have a more authentic parenthood, parenting more with intention creates a better experience for all of us. Of course, I'm so happy to be here and and thrilled to be able to talk to you. And with that, we will end the session. I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.